Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by poet and scholar, Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, a queer black troublemaker, a black feminist love evangelist, and a prayer poet priestess. Dr. Gums has a PhD in English, African and African American Studies, and Women and Gender Studies from Duke University. She was the first scholar to research the Audre Lorde Papers at Spelman College, the June Jordan Papers at Harvard University, and the Lucille Clifton Papers at Emory University during her dissertation research. At the age of 19, Dr. Gums founded Broken Beautiful Press, a grassroots publishing initiative inspired by Kitchen Table Press and Redbone Press. Broken Beautiful has published several poetry collections, educational zines, transformative workbooks, and online projects. She is a widely published public intellectual and essayist on topics from the abolition of marriage to the power of dreams to the genius of enslaved African ancestors. Her work appears in publications like Makeshift, Left Turn, The Crisis, Ms. Magazine, The Feminist Wire, and Obsidian. She has essays in many academic and activist books, including The Revolution Starts at Home, The Black Imagination, Abolition Now, Does Your Mama Know, and Women's Voices, Feminist Visions. She's also a visual mixed media artist. Her current series is Black Feminist Breathing Collages. Alexis and her mother, Pauline McKenzie Day, created the dynamic duo Doula Team as an intergenerational healing project that supports people giving birth with holistic support. Dr. Gums recently completed a successful Western Hemisphere tour with her interactive oracle project, The Lord Concordance, a series of rituals mobilizing the life and work of Audre Lorde as dynamic sacred text. Her accomplishments, writings, and activism are extensive and a story in and of themselves. As we bring National Poetry Month to a close, we'll also be taking a closer look at Dr. Gum's books, Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugitivity, and M. Archive, After the End of the World. Dr. Gum's Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? 
I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. Well, I have to tell you, and I don't know if you remember, we met. I mean, and I, I, one, of the, one of the great things that I went to in 2015 was Fire and Ink. Yes. Yeah. You know, what was so special about meeting you, it was like shortly after Grace Lee Boggs had joined the ancestors. And I had known Grace for a while. In fact, I often tell people, I mean, I'd known Grace since she was in her 80s. And every year she kept telling us it was going to be her last year. (laughs) And suddenly not being on, on this plane, in this part of the universe. And I had made the commitment to go to Fire and Ink, not only as a writer, but also to write about it. And you know how sometimes you're feeling like some kind of way? And mm. that one day you had written something about Grace, and there you were. And it was like having a relative who sort of understood what was going on, but that you still had to go along in your life. And it was just like, nice that you were there yeah yeah i remember that moment and i i remember i was posting every day i was posting um something you know from grace like some a quote from something she had written or a video interview with her and i was i was looking at um how do we all learn grace you know like Mm -hmm. now that she has transcended and it was so wonderful to see you, to be in Detroit and to see you and to feel just, you know, enveloped in the, in the family of those of us who've been impacted by, by Grace Lee Boggs. So, yes, I definitely remember that moment, and I remember mm-hmm. how to just be able to recognize each other in that moment and, mm-hmm. and love Grace. Mm-hmm. I know. You know, it's really, you know, it's like so many, you know, so to be in – that, that space with fire and ink to see so many people. I mean, there were people there who you met who then, you know, have stayed with you or, you know, you, you just like reconnected with it. That was almost like a, a poetic, a creative family reunion. Exactly. That's exactly the words I was going to say. I feel the same way about fire and ink. It's a family reunion and it's, it's also like an ancestral family reunion. You know, I feel like there's so many ancestors who bring those of us who have come to Fire and Ink together, and so it's like we're celebrating them, we're, we're meeting and connecting with each other, and then we, we decide that we're going to collaborate forever for the future. It, it's interesting that you went to Duke, and you're a, a black feminist. I was talking to Tim M. West, and he was saying that, the people, I said, well, what helped you as you, you came out and to find your voice as a poet? And he said, you know what? It was those black feminists from Duke. He said, they recognized, he said, he said they recognized that he was queer before he even knew exactly. Mm. He said he was still like struggling with it. And he said, and they just said, well, come on, and, and grabbed him and took him along. And then from there, he was influenced by, of course, Audre Lorde. Uh, Pat Parker, what is it about you women from Duke? <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely very proud to be to be part of an incredible lineage of black feminists who have been at Duke or who are at Duke now. And, you know, I think there's so many people that we could name. I'm thinking about Mendy um, Obadike, mm-hmm. thinking about 
Carla Holloway and um, Sharon Holland was there for a while. And um, gosh, Juanima Lubiano is doing such amazing work and has been transforming lives at Duke for decades. So yes, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, I don't know if it's Duke specific, but I know that as somebody who went there for graduate school, I've benefited from that tradition of black feminists at Duke who are, who are loving and who definitely see an, an intergenerational mandate. So I, I love that image of them scooping Tim, Tim M. West up because I feel like I've been scooped up myself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it was funny because he said not only did they scoop him up after a certain point, they told him he needed to leave the nest and go out and meet some gay men. And it was, I just like howled. It was so, <laughs> that, that's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. So when did you feel that you found your poetic voice or this was the direction that you were going to go through. I know that at 19 you founded the Broken Beautiful Press, but when did you really start to feel that, that this is your voice, this is the path that you're going to do, and who influenced you? Those are such great questions. I think, you know, I think my poetic voice has evolved over time, but I knew that, I knew that poetry was important as a way to, I guess, express my voice from a very young age. And so I, I first started writing poetry and, you know, I didn't have the language of praise poems, but I now realize that from a young child, you know, in elementary school, I was writing praise poems to the people in my family, you know, and mm-hmm. just about the people around me. And I, I continue to understand that part of my purpose is to recognize and through poetry to really offer my community an opportunity to be seen, you know. And so that, that's something that really, you know, early on I, I, had, I, I had an impulse towards that. And then when I saw what it meant to people to really be recognized, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is why I'm here. I'm really here so that my people can understand how deeply they are loved. And that is something that is as true right now as it was when I was, you know, six, seven years old, first writing those mm-hmm. poems. Finish your thought, because it made me think of something. Yes. No, no, no. And I was going to move to who I've been influenced by, but I would love your follow-up mm-hmm. to what I was saying about the praise poem. Well, you know, um, I hear what you're saying, and, and that you do, did that at such a young age. Yeah, I was in a school once, and I was with some elementary kids, and, you know, we just sort of sat there and, after, and I let them write, and afterwards, like, the teacher was like, how did you get them to write? You know, they don't do anything. And I said, well, you know, I just encouraged them to write. And some of what they wrote were praise poems. They were things that in the normal academic setting here in elementary that they were being like, oh, no, you have to write this, you have to write that. They weren't being encouraged. Whoa. And here at the, at the – you're talking about, you know, these were – were future Alexis Pauline Gums who were getting that voice crushed. And mm-hmm. here you had that encouragement. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's just great. Yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, you know, and I, I appreciate, you know, my parents for really valuing that and, and the rest of my family. You know, I remember my grandmother 
would introduce me to people. You know, my grandmother was a, um, one of these amazing black women community activists who, who belongs to like every church because that's mm-hmm. how her organizing works, right? So mm-hmm. I remember my grandmother taking me to all the different churches that she was involved in and she would say, this is my granddaughter, the poet, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that is something that is important. And I do think that, you know, Everyone, you know, doesn't necessarily need to think of themselves as a, as, a, as a future APG, but I think that everyone is a genius. Like when I work with young children, everything they have to say about their families, about their experience, about their world, it's poetic, it's priceless, it's honest, it's really valuable. And I do think that part of the work that poets do is, is to reclaim, you know, those aspects of our voice that have been silenced in order to push forward certain narratives, right? Certain stories about what life means, but there's always something more. And so I, I think that there's, there's a way that we deserve to listen to each other. Like we're all, you know, just a six-year-old genius and that we, we have that curiosity and inquiry about what, how is this person gonna describe the world? You know, I, I think about my, um, my niece, I have a niece who is gonna turn two in June and, you know, she's just learning to use words. And so the way she uses words is totally poetic, but there's such insight and brilliance that she brings to our family just because of the words she chooses to use out of her limited little vocabulary as a baby. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we do lose that, as you, said, as you said, and I think there's so much that happens in our educational system that we have to then go back and unlearn in order to liberate you know, the child within who has something to say. So you're going, so here you are at 19. At 19, you founded Broken Beautiful Press. Was it just to do your works or did you see that some of your, your friends, your cohorts, they had that and that you needed a vehicle to publish your works? You know, the reason that I founded Broken Beautiful Press um, when I was 19 is because, well, as you said, I was really inspired by Kitchen Table Press. I didn't at that time mm-hmm. know about Redbone Press yet. And I was in a course with a beloved mentor, intellectual mother of mine, Sarah Jasmine Griffin, who is a black feminist literary scholar. And she taught at Columbia University where I went and she brought in one of the pamphlets from the Freedom Organizing Series that Kitchen Table Press created. And it was just, you know, it was like a stapled, small pamphlet that um, was, it was, I think this particular one may have been the Kambahi River Collective Statement, but she told us that, you know, speeches by Angela Davis and by Audre Lorde, they would be published in in these little bright, colorful books, and they had a pin that went with them, like Black Feminism Mm. It was a bright yellow pin that went with the red Kambahi River Collective Statement pamphlet, which I, I now have a full collection of those pamphlets that I've found on, on the Internet and ordered from eBay and stuff. But <laughs> I saw that, and there was something about the audacity of that and the bravery, but also the accessibility of that that made me so excited. And I've never stopped thinking about Kitchen Table Press. I wrote my senior thesis about Kitchen Table Press, and, you know, mm-hmm. I wrote wrote about Barbara Smith in my dissertation, and I, I felt that there was a way that what I thought was um, 
what I thought was not shareable, you know, like the work that I was writing and like you said, the work that my friends were making or even collages or, you know, more playful things that we were doing, that it could become shareable immediately, you know, and that that was something that we had access to. And, you know, I was a college student at the time and, you know, gratitude to the brothers who worked in the copy shop at Columbia University during that time because they let me make a lot of free photocopies <laughs> of hard stock and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that was the inspiration behind that. And then as time moved on, it evolved and, you know, there, it became a, a platform for um, organizations that I was involved with to be able to publish the work, the collaborative work that we were making through um, uploadable PDFs and also through physical um, physical copies. So yeah, it did it did come out of it came really first out of that community understanding that I was part of a community and a lineage of Black women who had been saying we can create something where we're at. You know, we we don't have to necessarily only share our work in um, in a bound form. We can actually have a, a level of immediacy. And I later learned from Barbara Smith that really um, she was getting ready and they were getting ready to go to Nairobi for the um, International Conference on Women that the UN was having in Nairobi in the 80s. And she was like, what if we, how can I bring the Kambahi River Collective Statement? And that was really the genesis of being like, well, let me go ahead and just make these copies and make it bright and put some Adinkra symbols and make it beautiful and pack it with me to bring so that I can distribute it um, to the to the women who are there, um, so yeah, I think that there there's a way that publishing as organizing and as a form of immediacy and presence is is really important to me. But it became understandable and possible because of that precedent of Kitchen Table Press. Now I was in Ann Arbor, I want to say last month, and um, someone was putting on this thing, and they and they had a lot of young people who were. They just got to college, and many of them were feeling that freedom of being able to be out and to be themselves. We showed, you know, a lot of things. One of them, they showed a film clip that had you and your partner and the band traveling around. And they're like, oh, hey, you know, we could do that. I mean, it was really, really wow. exciting to see that. But mm-hmm. there were people there from, it was intergenerational, and there was one person who talked about how she had used to have to print out her pamphlets and put them together. I'm trying to think. I'm like, oh, she used a mimeograph machine, you know. And I'm like, yeah. okay. And then somebody else was talking about, you know, like making the copies and copying them and stapling them together. And then, like, some of the younger people were talking about zines and, you know, like, oh, you know, a book. Mm-hmm. You still publish books. How, you know, there are some people who talk about poetry and they talk about, oh, you know, how we have to, you know, if you're reading it, they memorize it. They have to do slam poetry. But there's something about the book and the word, seeing it. And I think that it makes me think like um, Timmy Morrison and I, we were talking, he said that he had a poem that he had done. And he asked someone, can you handle my weight? And someone took it to mean weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. But if you read it, it meant, can you handle my weight? And he had W A I T, which is a totally different meaning and takes you someplace. Mm-hmm. How, how important is it to you to have this written word? 
you know, so I read a syllabus that Lucille Clifton used when she taught she taught a class at Duke. Speaking of speaking of black women at Duke, um, many years ago, and one of the things that she shared in her syllabus with her students was that um, basically that poetry is like the ethical practice. It's a possibility that you might say the right thing at the right time to the right person. And I always have remembered that because I think that, I think that that's, the language functions in multiple ways, right? And so as a poet, I'm practicing my language use and I'm, and I'm thinking about language in a lot of different ways. But the ways that language circulates have a lot to do with, with time, right? And so mm-hmm. I think it matters, you know, we're talking right now, and of course it's recorded and it will be shared later, but it's important what I say to you on this particular day, at this particular time, you know, whatever energy is moving for you, whatever happened to you earlier in the day, whatever you're thinking about and, and what, what breakthrough you're having and, and dreams that you're making real at this moment, what I say is going to spark something in you. And then you're going to say something and you're sparking so much for me, right? This is happening in this moment and our language is important. And so we can hear each other. Right. And so I mm-hmm. think about, and then I think about, you know, zines and um, you know, the kind of small chat books that I was making at that time when I was 19. And I think about what it means to be able to have, what you what you're thinking about and what you're dreaming about in a way where you can pass it to someone and they can engage it in kind of a more extended period of time right they can reflect on it they can look back at it but it's still somewhat ephemeral like it may not you know last for generations it's just like some cardstock right and mm-hmm. then i think about the book like i think about spill or m archive or um, our anthology revolutionary mothering and I think about a wider circumference, you know, like I felt like the zines that I made um, when I first started Broken Beautiful Press before we were doing the online stuff, it was like, you would only get this if you, if I gave it to you, you know, like I would hand it to you or at the very most, I would mail it to you, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that was, the, that was kind of the, the level. And I think with these, with these other forms of books, um, that are that are literally physically more durable, it actually makes it possible for other people to share the work as far as they can reach, right? So it allows people to then, they, they teach the work in their classes or they use it in their workshops or, you know, it, it stays in the library for, you know, some certain period of time. And so it reaches more people across space and time, but it's all still coming back to that word in that moment that I, that I wrote it, you know? And so I, I think that as someone who, you know, there's this, there's this distinction between performance poets and page poets that I've heard before, mm-hmm. kind of part of what you're getting at with the weight and the weight and, you know, how mm-hmm. can people understand and um, reflect on the multiple meanings of everything that we're saying. And I think about it more as a distinction between poetry as a form of prayer and poetry as a form in the in the preacherly tradition, right? And mm-hmm. I, I, in both of those forms, but I think that there's like a quietness and a prayerfulness in a lot of my poetry that I see as coming out of a tradition of generations and generations and generations of people 
praying, you know, like really speaking with intention to the divinity within the people around them and within the environment around them with intention to the words that they're saying and the fact that they know that the words that they're saying as they say them or as they journal them or as they write them are actually changing what's possible in their lives and in the understandings of their communities. You know, so I, I see that as, um, I see that as a technology and then people are going to use the work in different ways. You know, I just found out today that a whole set of black feminist performers are in this public performance intensive and they're making kitchen table altars and they're using my book, Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugitivity, as an oracle to make these physical kitchen table altars that they are creating in their homes and documenting in pictures and posting on Instagram that I, that I saw today. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that it's, it's interesting because if our work is going to be used as a tool, then we have, to make, we have to make the decisions about what are the forms that allow it to be useful in the ways that it's going to be useful. Some of those ways we won't predict. I wouldn't have predicted anybody making an Instagrammable kitchen table altar, you know, from my, from my book when I was writing it. But I do think that in that case, it's great for them to be able to look at it and to look at it again, you know, and to hear it more than once in their own voice and to be able to hold it close to them and take it with them where they're going. You know, like that, that's a form of intimacy that feels very sacred and important to me. And it's as important as the intimacy of me having a conversation with you directly. Well, we're going to take our first break here. And um, um, you're listening to Collections by Michelle Brown. And my guest today is Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. We'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're talking with Alexis Pauline Gums, um, and we're going to talk about her book, Spill. You know, one of the beauties of what I do is I talk to so many people, and then I think about what they say. And mm-hmm. one of the people who has really had me thinking a lot was Eric Darnell Pritchard. And oh, he and I, I know, you know, <laughs> we talked a lot about literacy. Mm-hmm. And particularly how communities of color, black people, black queer people, we have our own form of literacy. We talked once about how someone can, you know, there's a a look you can make or a movement, and it says so much as opposed to, to words. And I thought about that 
as I was reading Spill, and I'll tell you a couple things about Spill. First of all, um, I also have a lot of books around me by people, and I had someone come by and they said, oh, so what are you talking about this month? And I said, oh, poetry. And um, they picked up, I had J.P. Howard's book, and then they, they looked at that, and then they picked up Spill, and they were like sort of thumbing through it, and they were like, this doesn't look like poetry. Why why doesn't it look like poetry? Well, just look at how it is. And I'm going like, and so I just sort of let them sit with it, you know. And after a while, you know, they were sitting with it and they were were thumbing through. And all of a sudden she said, damn. And I'm going like, what do you mean? (laughs) And she said, I get it. And she read, started reading this one, and she said, this does not come from anywhere. It wasn't talking about her life, but she got it. And it was the one that says, first comes the yawn, then the salt for the tears. And she read that, and by the time she got to the end of it, she was almost near tears because she said, I get that. That's me. And like I said, none of none of, of of the rest of it. You know, she said not the specifics, but she got that. And yeah. I thought about not only literacy, because here was a way that you were you pulled these words and communicated and she got that. You didn't say, oh, you're going to feel like this about X, Y, and Z. The words, the beauty, the power of these words spill. And I also like how you take spill, you know, there's the the hat tip to Hortense Spillers, but then there's also the part where you take that word and you sort of, you put the word out there and it comes back to you with these emotions, these feelings, these images. Mm-hmm. How, how did you come about doing spill and doing it in this way? You know, yeah, that's a great question. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your friend and, and allowing, allowing her to sit with the book. And I really appreciate that she was able to feel it. I think that there are many times where I have, um, you know, with people who may or may not um, always listen to poetry or or read poetry, um, sometimes I'll say explicitly, I'll say, you know, I put these words together and I, I think that I think that you'll be able to feel it, you know, and, and that's, that's my aspiration. Like when people think about it, it doesn't need to be like, well, does this make sense? Or is this, 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 and from their rational mind, but it's really important to me that people are able to, to feel it, you know, and to recognize that it's, it's for them and that it's an act of love and recognition for them. And so I'm so glad that that's the experience that your friend had. And so for me, creating still was a, um, it was really a ceremony and a process for me. I think about it as a libation um, mm-hmm. and an acknowledgement that I needed to do of all of the black women, named and unnamed, and really all of the black femmes whose energy I'm tapping into as I live my life, 
you know, like all, all of the revelations and all of the freedom seeking that is part of, part of my own journey. And so I, I wrote those scenes um, and it's interesting because, yeah, the way they are on the page, you can think of them as a poem on each page. I think of them as scenes, but they're poetic scenes, right? And you can mm. tell, you know, the rhythm and the, the way that rhyme and rhythm work in, um, in the scenes that there's something poetic happening every time. But for me, I was really, you know, I used Hortense Filler's words as portals because her work is so connected to the entire lexicon of Black women's freedom and Black feminist possibility. And, that, and that's why I love her work so much. And I, I basically felt like I went through the portals in her work and I saw and felt these scenes. You know, and I, I felt like I'm sitting there with this woman who, you know, is about to cry in the sense of that scene that you just read or who is, you know, just having this revelation while stirring the greens in a different scene or, mm-hmm. you know, walking off her front porch and not knowing it and, you know, not, not looking back um, with, with the clothes she has on and, and, and nothing less but hearing, um, hearing the sound of her mother's voice while she walked down those steps. You know, I... I I w- like your like your friend. I wasn't saying like this is an experience I've had in my life, and I'm describing it for everyone. I really felt like I tuned into all of these, almost like a um, almost like a dreamscape. All of these scenes of these different small moments, but that are are a big deal in the lives of these different people. And what I, what I had to do as I sat there to write about it was I had to give the feeling of being there to whoever would read it, you know, and, and I had to, I, I, what I was doing was also like holding close to me the feeling of being with all of these folks across time and across space, the feeling of being with them. And a lot of that wasn't about like, okay, how specifically can I describe what was she wearing and, you know, all of these things, but it was about, okay, there's a, there's a cadence or there's a rhythm and there, there's something, there's a repetition that gets at how it feels to be connected to this particular woman and her possibility of freedom, this particular community and their possibility of liberation. Um, yeah, so that, that, that's what the experience was like for me, and then when it came to, I always called it Phil because I was, I was honoring Hortense Spillers and the fact that it was really engaging her work every day that allowed me to even have that experience. And then I was thinking after I had the scenes kind of in the order that I wanted them, which is not the order that they came in, and, and in fact, not all the scenes that came to me are even in, in Phil. Some of them, I think, were just for my own edification and not necessarily for, um, for the book. I um, I thought about wanting folks to have something that they could hold on to through the journey. And because it's not like you follow one character through the journey or you're not, it's not really a beginning, middle, and end type of situation in this book, I wanted folks to have these definitions of the word spill or the possibilities of what spilling could be to be something that they could um, have, you know, like have to, to hold on to and say, okay, we're still, spill is still happening. We're still, mm. still, what are the things that are spilling in my own life 
what does spill mean as a collective of people moving? What does spill mean in a gendered sense? You know, all, all of these different um, resonances that the word spill has in its use so far in the English language and, and how it's implicated in all sorts of things, in collectivity, in violence, in um, the spilling of blood, in the travel through water, in, um, you know, the work of cleaning that has been black femme labor for, um, for such a long time for so many of us. So yeah, I, I thought about I thought about that. It was one of the last decisions that I made in terms of structuring the book was to include those definitions, which are really like, I mean, if you Google spill, they're the definitions that come up. And so I was interested in how there's already this poetics of you know shifts and um, violence and um, you know blood in the way that is defined by the most normative of forces, and that has everything to do with the experiences of black women and black men. You know, and I think, too, uh, you know, when as I've been talking about it and talking to people particularly about those, like a young, I have a young trans friend who's like 20. When I said spill, she was like, oh, yeah, I know what that is, you know, you know. And she was thinking of it one way, but then here was someone else who took the thing about, you know, to fall off a bicycle. And, you know, it was like a, this intergenerational conversation that came about by looking at the definitions of the word, mm-hmm. which was like really also fascinating about it. Do you find, you know, I had um, talked to some elders and people who are dealing with the, particularly the older LGBT community. And I know that one of them was uh, Dr. Monty Woody, and the other one was Dr. Perry and, uh, in New York. And, they would, and at one point they both talked about some of the issues and challenges of LGBT elders and not having children and, you know, taking care of it and social isolation. And so... Um, I mean, I just sort of listened to them, and afterwards, I mean, you know, I understand how you sort of feel these things. So I wrote something like, who's going to know? And it was hearing what they were saying. It moved me to tears, but then I had someone read it, and they were like, are you okay? And I go, no, I'm okay. I'm hearing what they're saying. As you were writing some of this, did you feel it down in your soul in a way like you were really giving voice to women, to our ancestors, to those women slaves, what we had all gone through, that suddenly it was like you put it out there, I want to go into that portal, and they were like, okay, sister, here it is, tell me, you know. Yes, exactly like that, exactly like that. You know, and I think about, I know I'm not the first person by, by many, many centuries to have felt that way. Um, but yes, the way you describe it is, is exactly how I felt. I felt like I had opened and I had dedicated every single morning, you know, to listening. And it was like, all right, girl, well, this, okay, this, okay, this, you know. And um, I think about, I think about um, Dolores Kendrick, who, who um, recently passed away, an incredible incredible poet um, who wrote The Women of Plum, 
which was specifically specifically for her of listening to enslaved women and um, their stories, their untold stories. She didn't learn about her book until after I had already written Spill, but I see it very much as an ancestor text to Spill. And I, I love knowing that, you know, there are certain times that if, if one of us is listening and decides to listen, all of these voices and all of these ancestors are like, okay, good. Maybe now is the time that our community can learn from what I went through, you know, and from what, um, what that might mean for our collective freedom in this moment. So, yes, you know, it was very, um, it was very, and is still, I have to say, like, I open up the book to read, you know, at events and to share with people, and I still gasp, and I still feel like what's happening in that particular scene is giving me even a brand new message in the moment that I'm living now, which is different than the moment that I sat down and wrote, you know, and, and I, I think that there's something about that that is very palpable for me, and it, it means that this is a different kind of book for me, like it's never finished, you know, like it is mm. it's, it's out there, you know, the words are in the order that they're going to be in, and, you know, that's, that is that, but at the same time, what this book is teaching me, I'm still learning. And it's different for me saying, like, you know, I'm an expert on something, and now I've explained it to my, to my people. Not to say that I am an expert on some things, and I do have things I want to explain <laughs> to our people. But this is not, and I think the poetic task for me more generally is not that. It's not coming from a place of I already know everything. It's coming from a place of profound openness and just being in that place that says, I can be open enough that everything, everything that has happened that could possibly be a blessing to this moment has the opportunity to come through. And I still have to be in that way in relationship to the book, even though I'm not still writing it. I still have to be that way in relationship to it every time I read it, every time I, you know, open up to a particular page. So, yeah, it's, it's very, like you said, in the depth, you know, I feel it at the core that it's, it's not because um, I'm going through the same things that all of these different people have been through, but I know that it's profoundly connected to my life in, um, in this moment, not, not, not just in the past and not just, you know, as something to note or to know, but in this moment I'm connected to those experiences. Yeah, as you were when it, you were the portal to bring the, this, these scenes, these thoughts, then as you're reading or you're talking to students, other women, other poets, do you find that spill has then become the portal for them? You know, it has, and I'm so grateful for that. I mean, so many people, like I was just saying, the kitchen table altars that the folks are making right now, um, People have said that they've been using it as, as an oracle um, just in their lives. You know, there's a, there's a scholar and a writer who I admire so much, Amy Meredith Cox, who told me she carries Bill in her purse just mm. so that she gets to a moment in her day where she needs to reconnect. She just opens it, you know, to a page, and that helps her moving through, you know, moving through the subway, moving through the world, her commute, her job. And I think... I've heard stories like that over and over again, 
which to me, it makes me very happy because it's not about, you know, it, this is, I, I think what it affirms is that this isn't something that I just like invented or something clever, you know, that I put on paper. It really is a connecting point, an ancestral and um, energetic connecting point that can be a resource in such a bigger way, you know, just such a bigger way than anything that I could think to say just from my one lifetime and my personal experience could be. It's coming from a place that is larger than that, and it's very humbling for me because every, every black woman, and actually a lot of people who aren't black women, like, like your friend said, that's me, and people mm-hmm. say that all the time. They're like, this is from my life. Some, somebody was like, are you listening in the bushes? outside my house, you know, like, how do you know what's going on in my life that is in this book? And I'm like, it's because it does belong to you. You know, like, it's the, the point of the book is just for you to be able to reach your and recognize yourself in that. It's not because I know everybody's business. It's just that, you know, it, it belongs to all of us. It really is collective in, in terms of where it's drawn from, but it's also collective into who can claim it now. That it's that it's distributed. Now you know, there is that her first reaction was like, "This doesn't look like poetry." And I know that sometimes when you're writing and you're putting the words to paper, there's a way that that you see the words on the paper. Like if I write something and then someone like lines it all up, I'm going like, "No, no, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be." How imp- okay? What made you decide, and how did it, the format of the book, I agree with you. I think of them as scenes, as poetic scenes, each one. But, I mean, did you get pushback when you went, when you did it? Did people go like, well, why did you write it like that? And, and why don't you have everything like this in, you know, in certain terms? Um, even to the way, um, as you capitalize, I think I was listening to one of the things that you sent me, where how you said, well, you did capitalize vapor rub, <laughs> but you know, but you wrote it in your own in your own way. How important was that format to you? And you know, I get it. But how often have you heard people go, or did you, or did you get that pushback? Like, well, this is a different format. Uh, you know, you know, I think. I think I only fully realized how important the format of it was when I did get pushback. And so in, um, Phil is published by a, a, an academic press that has a peer review process. Um, so that means that there's anonymous reviews that are part of the publishing process and part of the press's decision-making process if they're going to publish the book or not. And so one of the anonymous reviewers, and so I, I do not know who this person is, and that's on purpose, I'm not supposed to know who they are, had some real, some real pushback about, you know, maybe the line breaks, you know, it should look more like a poem on the page, not just for the sake of looking like a poem, but, but um, they had some suggestions about that. And thinking about that and thinking about, okay, well, what would happen if I, if I did that? I realized that it was actually very important for these particular scenes to look the way that they look. You know, they look like you know, maybe one block paragraph or maybe, you know, multiple paragraphs on a page. Many of them are at the top of the page and then there's a lot of blank space after them on the page. And 
for me, I realized that there was something about the um, closeness of the words to each other. There was something about the fugitivity itself, like the, um, the going and going and going and then cut off and going and going and going and then cut off that was actually part of the rhythm of the freedom seeking that I was experiencing in connection to these scenes with all of these, all of these different freedom moments. And I think that there was also a way that it's, they're poetic scenes, but they also are very much in conversation with and derived from these um, prose form sources, including the essays of Hortense Spillers, but also including the novels that Hortense Spillers writes about and the novels that she doesn't write about. You know, there, there's very much like, a, and of course it re also refers to poems that, that don't look like, look like paragraphs on the page. I think that when I had to think about why, why, you know, and I did think about it seriously, and I take the, I take the anonymous reviews very seriously because they're a really great form of feedback for me and my process, I realized that, no, actually, this is, this is what it's supposed to look like. And mm -hmm. I, didn't re I didn't realize that until even, you know, far after that, when people had the book and they were using it and students had it, that um, I visited a class that uh, Black Feminist Genius and Zile Isoke, who's here in, um, who's here in Minnesota and actually collaborating with her is the reason that I'm here in Minnesota. She had me visit her class some years back after Spill came out and the students talked about how that blank space on the page made them, made them want to write and made them like, even if they didn't write it right there in the book, it, it sparked their own writing, which I think is such an important part of the, part of the process. But yeah, there have been people who are like, you know, poems with a certain kind of way and what's poetic about this. And the, the reality is the book is marketed as poetry and it's marketed as black feminist theory. And I do think that in terms of, you know, um, how, where to put it in the bookstore, what sorts of awards to consider it for or not consider it for, where it gets reviewed and how it gets reviewed, people are making decisions all the time about whether it's too poetic or not poetic enough, you know, whether it's not, you know, it's not narrative or it's not poetry. And honestly, I believe, and I have been taught, and um, my, one of my writing teachers who I love so much, Zelda Lockhart, is the person who I'm hearing say this to me. She said, you know, when something is coming through, you have to respect that it may have its own form, right? And so I never sat down and said, I am writing a novel right now, or I am writing a book of essays right now, or even I am writing a book of poetry right now. What I did was I sat and I was very present and I listened and I allowed what was coming through to dictate the form that I used in order to, to, um, to show evidence of it, you know, and to share evidence of it and to make it shareable. And so that was the form that it came in. And um, I think that that's, you know, whether that can be a quandary within publishing, whether that could, could have risked the whole thing, because it could have been that it was never published because of that. Um, that actually is something that I, that I have to be able to risk because I have to respect the work itself. And it's not simply a product that I need to fit into a certain form of packaging. It's part mm -hmm. of a tradition that has participated in multiple forms you know, over the generations that Black Women's Freedom has been part of a, of a literary breakthrough. 
but it also is something that is beyond any single form and may take any form, you know, like that, that it needs to in order to come through. I think the fact that in some ways it looks like poetry and doesn't look like poetry and that people read it and they're like, well, maybe I'm just reading a paragraph or they're like, okay, I'm reading this short piece of a poem. I think that it actually has allowed access for people to push aside some of their expectations, which leaves them even more open to be impacted by the scene and the reality of it for themselves. You know, like I think about the, the amazing story that you shared and your friend being like, this is weird, you know, but even mm -hmm. pushing aside that I know what this is, you know, like that this, so, you know, we walk around in the world and we're like, we know what this is. I think it's like we were talking about before with the children and I was talking mm -hmm. about some of that wonder and some of that remembering that as much as we've experienced and as wise as we all are because of our experiences, we still have the capacity to not to be surprised and to not know what something is. And that openness allows us to be vulnerable. It allows us to be transformed. It allows parts of us that we may have closed off to be open in a way that's necessary. And I definitely think that's part of the work of that book. Well, you know, I'm glad that you talked about that because you know, going back to those kids, because when I heard that first time, someone said, it doesn't look like poetry, that I immediately went back to that place in my mind, because when you, you structure, or you say it has to be this way, one of those kids who had chose, because I gave her opportunity to write outside of the constraints of the classroom, you know, just write me something, she wrote in her less than perfect way about where she was at that time. And she and her family were experiencing homelessness. And she wrote this in this, the way that, you know, like the teacher was like, you know, I'm just looking at it and they don't sit down and I want them to write about what was happening in the class and what they were teaching. But she wrote, from her heart, what she was experiencing, what, the, what her fears were as a child dealing with this. And the teacher, it like opened, she read it, and she was like, wow. It opened up her mind to what was happening in the world around then, where sometimes, like you said, how it comes through is how you're supposed to write it. And the world is better without you know, these, these filters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I think I really agree with that. And I think, you know, there's always a balance between what, how something comes through and what makes it possible for it to be shareable, you know. And I, I think that part of, part of the training, you know, that the children are having is how can you become legible, right, because, because, of course, it's important what we're experiencing, and it's important what we have to say. And, you know, as Erica Badu said in her song, mm -hmm. what, what good do your words do if they can't understand you? That is something I think about almost every day. You know, and I, I have, um, I, I worry that am I too strange? Am I too quirky? Am I just totally incomprehensible to my own people such that there's no way that I can be connected or have impact, right? And so that, that's something that... Um, I understand that there that forms exist and that um, there are ways that 
maybe we, we do have to work to be understandable to connect to other people who aren't us and they're not inside of our head and so they don't know everything that we're thinking and there may need to be a bridge to go across so that we can connect. But I do think that given that, there's always the possibility of creating new forms for how we understand each other, you know, and I think that that's something that's important to me. I wouldn't want anyone to think like, well, if you get it or you don't get it, who cares? You know, it's, <laughs> that's not how I feel. You know, I feel very committed to the fact that, you know, I want to be, uh, the whole purpose is to be in communion with my people so that something collective can happen. And so I'm thinking about that, but I want something to be able to happen that makes so much more possible than has ever happened. And so that means that I can't just give you what you're used to. I have to ask you to, you know, come with me, you know, bear with me a little bit, looking at this book that you're like, what is this? But like, stay with it for a moment. And like, let's see what can happen. Because it's not there's nothing that I'm talking about in that book that everyone that I know, and everyone that you know, can't understand. You know, it's, it's not like that at all. It's just that there may be, it, it, and at the same time, everyone that I know and everyone that you know may have never seen a book that looks quite like that, mm-hmm. which is okay, you know. Well, Alex, we're going to take our second break here, and when we come back, we're going to talk about M Archive after the end of the world. We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with our conversation with Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums. Um, one of the things that I, I love and I thank you for, it's like you sent me, you said, check out this, check out that. So I went and I watched the Evergreen Art Lecture. Well, cool. And, I mean, and one of the things, I mean, you know, I look at things that some different, one of the things that I looked at visually when you were doing the exercise with the people in the class it was as if, you know, how you would read a word from a one pet, or it was like you were, you pushed the word out there, and it went out, and their thoughts attached itself to it. And in looking at you and watching you visually, it was like you were there, and, and it came back to you, and then you read a passage from... M archive, but it was like it was something very visual. Like I could see you like breathing the word out, and then back, inhaling it back in, and then reading this piece. Mm. Mm. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Because, you know, I, of course, I couldn't see myself in the moment. And even I don't really watch videos of myself for, for very long because mm-hmm. I feel self-conscious and I get, you know, a little bit uncomfortable. But, yeah, thank you for that, the visuality of, of that. I definitely feel the, um, that breathing and that listening is a very core part of engaging with other people. You know, and and in that case, the ceremony, that particular art lecture was called Echolocation, um, mm-hmm. Echolocation Oracle. And I was thinking about, you know, how do whales do that? You know, like they're using sonar. They're, they're making sounds and they're echoing off of each other to sense physically where their family is, you know, across miles of ocean. It's incredible to me, you know, and so I was thinking, what are the ways, how can I be like that, you know, and how can we be like that? How can we echolocate and really get present enough to the reverberation? I like how you said it it came back to me. How can we be present enough to that echo that it allows us to be exactly where we need to be, that it allows us to be connected even if we're far apart, and that it allows us to... um, yeah, to hear each other and respond to each other in the ways that we need to. You know, uh, because in the background you could hear the whales. I mean, I mean, I was right there with you. I mean, I could, I could visualize feeling almost like, like that, like you were, you know, my sister whale sending it out there, and you know, and I, I felt it. I mean, it was like there was so many levels out that the senses were. I felt engaged by what you were doing. Oh, thank you. I, I, I very much appreciate that. And I love whales. And I'm just being taught so much by whales. And anybody who, like, is connected to me at all on social media, my most used emoji is just a whale. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> my comment is usually, like, whale, 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 whale. Um, <laughs> There's so much that I think that whales are saying that I can't even put into words, but it's, um, it, yeah, I love whales. That's, that's, <laughs> I can never say it enough. Now, you said that um, M. Jackie Alexander had provided the, and I don't want to, for the lack of a better word, the inspiration for this book, much like Hortense Spillers had for Spill. How so? Yes. yes, very much so. So there, I mean, there, there are major similarities and there are also differences. So the way that I use Phil, um, in Phil, I use Spiller's work every day as a portal. That is exactly what I did with M Archive, um, using work, um, words, mostly questions, but also other images from M. Jackie Alexander's book, Pedagogies of Crossing which is um, a book that I love and, and has had a major impact on me. Now, the difference is that while Hortense Spillers is actually somebody who I didn't really get to know and build my own relationship with until after I wrote Spill, because I had been reading her work and I was very impacted by it, but I didn't actually know her personally. And now I do, and I love her so much, and I'm so appreciative of, of who she is and how she is a mentor for me. Um, Jackie had already been a mentor before I started to write M Archive. Um, so there's something 
there's something different about you know someone whose work you know and you don't know them yet personally and then somebody who you do know personally and you're engaging their work and so so I'll, I'll acknowledge that but in terms of what the practice looks like every day it was like the same practice and in fact it was part of the same decision I mean there was a, when I decided I was like you know what these three theorists Hortense Spillers M. Jackie Alexander and Sylvia Winter these three black women I know that what I need to do is I need to work with their work for an extended period of time and I needed to create a ceremony for myself to do that and I decided the three of them from jump and so I started first mm -hmm. with Phil and it was you know it was more than a year and then I moved to Jackie but I, I decided that in one moment that I was going to do all all three and the, and the third one which is inspired by Sylvia Winter is um, is now in its peer review process at the beginning of its peer review process so it's, it'll be on its way when it is but um yeah and so Jackie inspires me in so many ways um she is an intellectual mentor but she's also a spiritual teacher I think of her as a spiritual teacher and she's the first person who I saw um I was in graduate school and I was doing dissertation research I had a fellowship and I traveled to Emory University to do dissertation research in the archives and um, Jackie allowed me to visit a class she was a visiting professor at Spelman that that year and she allowed me to come to a class that she was teaching and she's the first person I've ever seen do this she started her class by having everyone meditate at the beginning of the class all the students she meditated me as a person visiting we all sat and meditated and that was how the class started and then you know we had discussions about the reading and did other things that you think would happen in a seminar but I never saw someone bring a practice like meditation into a class that wasn't about you know it wasn't about meditation it wasn't about religious studies it was about you know um, flows of capitalism and labor and and migration is what the class was about but that's the way that she grounded it and it taught me something that there was a separation between being spiritually present and being intellectually rigorous. I had kind of separated those and been taught to separate those, and she brought it back together for me. And, and it's that bringing back together that allows me to create work like the work that I create. It allows me to have, have and admit that I'm having a profound spiritual experience as I'm relating to intellectual work, like the work that Jackie writes, like the work that Hortense Spillers writes, or Sylvia Winter writes, or so many other so many other people. So, so that's important. And I would say the other difference is that as I was writing M Archives, even though the even though the process was so similar, where it took me was so different. You know, and I I felt like Phil was taking me to this ancestral place over and over again or into the past or maybe maybe just up to the present whereas M archive was taking me to the future perspective every time mm. sometimes a very a very another planet you know like a very um, different experience and it was equally profound but what, one of the things that I noticed happening every day as I was writing M Archive is I would see these things that, you know, sometimes it's like this, this woman on a planet of sulfur and her heart is turning black and it's going to turn into a diamond. And, you know, that's a pretty um, different image. It's not like 
somebody in the kitchen cooking greens is not a familiar image to me or to really anyone that I know. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, as I would move through the day, every day that I was writing M Archive, so this is more than a year, I would see something from the scene that I had written that morning, prompted by, prompted by Jackie's question or portal, and I would see it. You know, like I saw this, this sculpture hanging from a ceiling of this black heart on the day that I wrote that scene about the woman on the planet from, of sulfur, you know. Mm -hmm. so that was very interesting, too, because I felt like it was teaching me something about how we are, our future is here. You know, like our future is really present, and there are ways for us to recognize it in this moment, just like there are ways to recognize our history and our past and where we've come from in this moment. And, you know, there, there, and, and there are ways that you're still, like you said, right there, because I know when I was listening to it, you put out the word Phyllis, and then they started to come back, and what you read, I have been to a brunch, I want to say it's Black Women's Reunion, Color of Changes doing it, and there had been a young woman there, and I immediately thought of her, because she was saying how, she was more like her grandmother or her great-grandmother, and she found herself reaching back to those, and there were things and that they had lived through, that they had done, they were, that they tried, that she was going back to that. And when you had put that word out there, Phyllis, and then you read a piece that talked about, you know, how we are these generations connected and going back and forth and being your grandmother. And it was yeah. like, Wow, you know. Yeah, that's right. Finally, they rec they eventually they realized that they were their own great 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 grandmothers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and and in fact, this young woman, she sort of almost said those words. It's like you know, like she. Uh, how some people say, "I'm becoming my mother." She was like, "I'm becoming my great grandmother, my grandmother." And it was like, and then when I heard that, I was like, "Wow, you know how." There are some ways that, like I said, the words and these scenes, they are out there. And here, M Archive is, like you said, talking into the future, but the future is today. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that's the other thing about really an expansive, and I'm so glad that you're doing this amazing uh, National Poetry Month series on your show, because I think that the, thinking about poetry in an expansive way means like what you just did, you know, like you're seeing the patterns and the resonances between, between generations of people's lives, between what somebody says and then what somebody else says out of a book or, it's, you know, like the, the word Phyllis and how it's related to this intergenerational being that we are experiencing. And I think that that's, that's actually at the base what is poetic about the work. What's most poetic about the work is that it's opening up the possibility for us to see the rhyme, the rhythm, the repetition in, in our lives itself, our lives themselves, and beyond our lifetime, right? That we're able to, to be in the poetic in a sense that it's not just these words on a page rhyme with each other or they have a really nice rhythm or they're just so beautifully arranged. It's, yes, that might be part of what allows us to experience it, but at the core, for me, what we're experiencing is that the universe is a poet, you know, like that we're actually mm -hmm. inside of a poem every day and we have the opportunity to, to maybe recognize that. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I, and I also like the part, like you said, the part, so much of it, like you said, the future. And when you listen to the parts when you're talking, um, when they talk about 2022 and you talked about being underground and then coming above ground and, you know, and it makes you think not only about today, like I said, it's about today, but it's about the future. And I mean, what can I say? I'm a fan. (laughs) I'm a fan. But um, one of the things that, that I also have encouraged people is like, to take a moment, and like I said, these are books like to me that you that you can read and you can sit with. And um, I gave one the spill. I said, you know, I said I'm giving you this as an example of a book. I said, like sometimes, like when you talk about how you can't sleep at night because you're so keyed up, to sit with this and read and and think and open your mind to doing it. And I think that. In these crazy days, sometimes we really need to be able to do that, to take a minute and to do that. And poetry, to me, can be a form of liberation, a form of radicalization, a form of protest. But poetry, I have a friend here, um, and he does a series where he calls it Poetry Can Be Anything. And he talks about looking for the poetry in life. And that seems to be what you're coming through in your scenes. And that it doesn't have to be said. It doesn't have to be like the roses are red, violets are blue. It doesn't have to be a haiku. It doesn't have to be different way. But there is a poetry in life. Yes. And to hear it and express it. Exactly. Exactly. And like you said, the children already know, you know, like Mm -hmm. children are just doing it. And, you know, maybe not just children, right? We're doing it in ways that we know and that we don't recognize. And whales are definitely doing it. You know, the other animals are doing it. The plants are doing it. You know, when June Jordan says love is life force, she's talking about the creative spirit as life itself, you know, and she's she, this is the essay that we um, that we published in Revolutionary Mothering. We start with with this beautiful essay that June Jordan, well, it was a speech that she gave that is, is now published in the book Revolutionary Mothering, where she talks about the fact that the lilies in the field, the wild lilies blooming on the same day in totally different fields in different spaces where they're not, where they're nowhere near each other, that's the poetic thing, right? Like that, like that's that's poetic. And um, noticing it is just actually the documentation of the ongoing poem, like we said. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here. What is next on your horizon? Oh, my goodness. I'm so excited. <laughs> so there's so many things. There's always so many things. Like I said, there's, there's the next book. There's actually a, a writing project that I'm, I'm early in that is um, engaging the history and legacy of Essence Magazine, um, mm. especially through the archival papers of Cheryl Green, my mentor Cheryl Green, who worked at Essence for many years and who, whose literary executor I am. So I'm doing this writing with the history of Essence. My mother also worked at Essence before I was born. So Essence oh. Magazine 
is inspiring me for this writing project that's emerging right now, and I'm excited about that because I just love it. I love writing, and it's always inspired by something that black women have created. Um, but this is the adventure. So I am officially the dramaturg for a, a play that is world premiering here, here in Minnesota by Sharon Bridgeforth called That Black Mermaid Man Lady. And so mm. it's, it's open here in Minnesota on June 1st. And dramaturg, I don't know if everybody even knows what a dramaturg is, but a dramaturg is basically the nerd of a play. Like a dramaturg <laughs> who, like, who offers context, who thinks about histories and like does very nerdy things so that um, they can be useful to a director and to a cast of a play in understanding the world of the play that they're in, right? And sometimes that world is, you know, what, whatever, the time that Shakespeare wrote, you know. But, but in this case, that wor this world is this world that Sharon Bridgeworth has created that's, like, at the juke joint, it's on the porch, but it's at the bottom of the ocean at the same time. And, like, oh. all, all the folks, all the ancestors, the whole community are there. And um, I get to really basically nerd out about that and um, create ways for the cast of this play and, and the director, who's my beloved sister friend, Ebony Noel Golden, to engage in this world that Sharon has created. And I'm excited about that because it's part of the poem of my own life. Like, this is my first time ever doing this, or at least, you know, officially doing it. Like, someone's actually paying me to be a dramaturg is so exciting to me. Because when I first learned the word dramaturg, I was in high school, and I was like, what? What does this word mean? And I learned what it meant, and I was like, oh, that's like what I do with music videos. Like, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm concerned about the music video, and I'm like, well, you know, five years ago, this song was this, and that image refers to this. And, there, you know, like, that, that's what I was doing when I was a kid. I was being a dramaturg for music videos while I was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm actually a dramaturg for a real play. So I'm, I'm super excited about it. And it's teaching me a lot because it's, it's something new, but it's allowing me to express another part of my creativity in community with this great ensemble and brilliant playwright and wonderful director. So I'm loving it. Well, it sounds like it's, it sounds like it's fun. I mean, it really does. I'm more looking forward to it. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for being with me. I will probably circle around and talk to you more because, you know, I love books. <laughs> I what? love books. I like people who write books. And <laughs> this play, this play has sort of, sort of I would like to, to learn more about it. And so I hope that you will come back and join me in the future and we can talk some more. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michelle. This is a, such an honor to be invited to, to be talking with you, and it's just so wonderful today to be able to hear your voice and your amazing insights. Thank you so much. Okay, well, you enjoy the rest of your time there in Minneapolis, and I hope to talk to you real soon. Okay, you too. Okay, bye-bye. I want to thank today's guest, poet and scholar, Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, for being with us on Collections by Michelle Brown. Among her many writings are her books, Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugivity, and M. Archive, 
After the End of the World. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.